one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please be seated. Of the four readings we have just heard, which of them is the most king-like? By that I mean... Which reading gives you a taste of the thrill of awe-tinged fear when a person who exudes power enters your presence? For me, that passage is the reading from Colossians, which tells us that Christ is the head. Paul takes about 10 verses heaping imagery of preeminence, dominion, and power to get it through to us that Jesus is the Lord of life. Or maybe the Jeremiah passage did that for you. It is where we get the image of the righteous branch of David and some of the strongest and most explicit promises of the coming Messiah's might. The crimes of the wicked shepherds of Israel demand God's action. And so he promises again the one he has promised since the beginning. The psalm appointed for today is likewise stirring and reassuring especially in our day when it seems all around us, people tell us that the pillars of our society are threatened, or the earth we call home is ready to spit us out, or when we hear of wars and rumors of wars. If you are troubled by the state of the world and need some direct reassurance of who is actually in control, I encourage you to return to Psalm 46 throughout this upcoming week. As we are told by Paul elsewhere in his letters, the gospel that Jesus Christ was crucified with common criminals, reviled and shamed by his countrymen, hung on a tree and therefore under the curse found in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, this gospel is a scandal to the world. I confess unreservedly that the selection of this reading for Christ the King Sunday caught me off guard. It's not a passage that immediately calls to mind the kingship of Jesus, is it? And yet, this is what we are told to expect throughout Jesus' ministry. Every study of the gospel I've ever been a part of has highlighted the fact that Jesus didn't behave the way the religious leaders and many of his people expected from the Messiah. And this was what led many of them to disregard him. We see earlier in Peter's rebuke of Jesus after the Lord first reveals his death by crucifixion that even his disciples expected the the man they confessed as Christ, to be too powerful to be actually killed. The charge that Jesus can't be the Christ, based on the fact that he died on the cross, is hurled from the foot of the cross itself, and by one of those condemned alongside him. The unbelievers I've talked to sometimes raise the crucifixion as a major reason for their unbelief, especially in Jesus as part of the Godhead. Being a king, especially a king of kings and lord of lords, and yet dying the most shameful death possible, 
at the hand of those you supposedly have power over, these do not seem to go hand in hand. They don't seem to go together at all. I shudder to think how I would react if I weren't steeped in the teachings of the church from a young age. And I praise God that he knew this weakness of mine and ensured that I would be able to see the cross for what it is. Where the world sees a brutal and humiliating death, the church sees the triumph of God's works on earth culminating with the king of the world enthroned on the tree. Think about the scene in your mind. Jesus is crucified in between two men, one on his right and one on his left. Over his head is the plaque that rightly names him the king of the Jews, accurate for all its intended mockery. One man hurls abuse at his king and is rebuked by his fellow subject. The man who rebuked the scoffer then pleads for mercy from his Lord and is judged worthy to enter into paradise with him. We aren't told explicitly the fate of the other man, but it is not unreasonable given earlier teaching to think that he did not enjoy the same mercy. Fundamentally, this scene, which at first glance looks to be a further illustration of the shame heaped on Jesus, even one of the criminals being killed alongside him is mocking him, is a picture of the judgment. The scoffing crowd, the condemned man hurling abuse even as his breath becomes more labored, is a picture of the world enthralled by power and rejecting the very concept of humility. The man who receives the promise of paradise, though he is under a just sentence of condemnation from the authorities, he is a picture of every sinner who is convicted of their plight before God. Seeing the yawning chasm of death before them and crying out to the only hope put before them, even that hope which in the moment looks battered and defeated. The eyes of the world see a wretched man who cannot be the one to hope in, else he wouldn't be on the tree. The world sees only its looming destruction and cannot see beyond to hope in anything but the certitude of its demise. Being so blinded, it scoffs and mocks against anyone who would offer a way out, damning itself in the belief that if the world can't find a way to salvation on its own merits, one must not exist. Listen to what the condemned thief says. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Doesn't this sound familiar? I can't think of how many times I've heard unbelievers raise the prospect of worldly suffering or their own trials or even the earthly problems of Christians as reasons for why there can't be a loving God behind all of creation. It is natural to question why we face hardships and heartbreaks in this life. But the world wants us to believe that it is God who brings disorder and destruction, or else that he doesn't care or simply isn't there. The spirit of the world wants to be saved from its demise so that it can go on seeking power for power's sake, abhorring mercy, and walking according to its ways rather than accepting the remedy of humility. We see this in the condemned thief's actions. At the last, he abuses our Lord, his only hope of being saved from the fate that awaits all who rest in their own pride. Repentance and humility are the furthest thing from the man's mind. 
His only thought is to escape his judgment and sentence. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This should also sound familiar as a strain of the testing Christ has confronted throughout his ministry. Give us some sign that we may believe. Instead of Jesus responding to this renewed abuse, condemnation comes from the lips of the repentant thief. Are you not under the same sentence of condemnation? Jesus, of course, does respond to the penitent thief's rebuke of his fellow, promising him to join Jesus in paradise. This shows us another truth about the judgment, that at the last it is not some form of capricious sorting between good people and bad people, based on inscrutable rules governing the difference between good and bad. Both men crucified with Jesus were justly condemned under the law for real offenses. They were both guilty and deserving of death, and apart from mercy and grace, ultimate condemnation before God in eternity. The difference between the two is that the one clung to the world's values and expectations in order to spit in defiance and ridicule on Jesus, and the other saw the truth of the matter, that he and his fellow were guilty, Jesus was not, and if Jesus was who he said he was, then he was the thief's only hope in the next life. We do not hear explicitly Jesus condemning the unrepentant thief, but we know from Jesus' other teachings, such as the parable of the judgment in Matthew, that the wicked and prideful in this life, who honor God with their lips while refusing to do the work he has called for them to do, they will be sent to eternal punishment. Perhaps Jesus didn't say anything to this thief because his fellow rebuked the man in his own plea for mercy from Jesus or because the man had already received condemnation under the law for his sins. In such a case, the judgment had already been pronounced. From this, we draw another lesson about the judgment. The one who does not believe in Christ as his hope, who mocks him and rejects him to their last breath, the salvation he brings, that person remains under the condemnation already pronounced under the law. However, the one who believes despite all the wiles of the world that Jesus is the Christ, even though he is at the brink of death when he receives him readily, that person is promised a place alongside Jesus in paradise. One final word about this reading before we return to the liturgy in a few moments. Oftentimes, the penitent thief on the cross is raised by people to dispute the necessity of baptism for being saved. At first, this does seem like a point in their favor, until you recall that throughout the New Testament, baptism is used as a figure of death to sin and rebirth in Christ. Paul says that, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The thief on the cross dies with Jesus in the literal and spiritual sense. His body died alongside his Lord's, and through repentance, his soul was counted dead to sin and alive in Christ. So it is not the case that Jesus made some kind of special exception. The penitent thief received the benefits of baptism by undergoing the thing which baptism signifies, that is, 
uh, death to sin and rebirth to life in Christ. The season of Advent begins next week. In Advent, we look forward to the second coming of our Lord, even as we hear about, the, about and remember his first coming as the baby Jesus. In Advent, we consider the four last things, death, the judgment, heaven, and hell. Having heard something of the judgment this week, I encourage you to take what we have heard in the gospel lesson today and think on it this week. When you take quiet time, think about the scene on the cross and think about the good thief as an example of the heart we are called to have before God. Lord Jesus, remember us as you have come into your kingdom. Amen. Amen.